0: Let's get a slightly different perspective in relation to COVID-19. There's a lot of scaring going on at the moment. Of course, figures and numbers are quite easy to throw out on television and on radio on a regular basis. And I know it does frighten people and, and rightly so in some cases. Uh, but one man who has had a slightly different view of COVID-19 around the interviews that I've listened to him is a retired professor of pathology, John Lee. Uh, John is a retired English pathologist who was formerly clinical professor at the pathology of Hull York Medical School and a consultant histopathologist at the Rotherham General Hospital later when... Went on by the way uh, to becoming the Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust Director of Cancer Services, and he joins me on the line. Good afternoon to you, Professor. Hi there, uh, John. I mean, when we look, the last time I, I heard you been interviewed it was on prime time here in rt about two or three months ago. And at that time, I suppose, case numbers were lower. Deaths were a little bit lower. Uh, But now we're looking at, particularly in the UK and Ireland, seems to be leading the way when it comes to, uh, obviously, mortality at the moment in case numbers. We have, at one stage, the lowest number of case numbers. Now we have, per head of population, per thousand, the highest number of case numbers. Yesterday, 3,955. Doesn't seem a lot to the 48,000 in the UK, but when you consider our population quite a high number in 28 deaths. What's happening, do you think?
1: What's happening? Well I think that's a really good question, I mean what, what we certainly know for sure is that no government in the world really knows how many infections from this disease are out there and um, we're reliant on the tests that we do for the disease, um, it's not one that you can diagnose clinically, you have to have a test for it um, and so the question is what do these numbers mainly achieve through PCR testing, what do they actually mean um, and it's uh, harder than you might think to really get to the bottom of, of what that is, clearly there's something going on, uh, clearly We need to react to it properly. Clearly, we need to look after people. The question is, what's the best way of doing that?
0: And what is the best way to do that? Currently, the plan is, you know, we we'll have this ping pong of in and out of lockdowns. Obviously, the UK is in a severe lockdown at tier three. Um, and obviously, Boris Johnson has been talking about other restrictions as well and enforcing those restrictions, with fine and possibly jail time. The same here. We're in level five. We only heard yesterday from our Taoiseach, or should I say, our Taunis, their second in command, that businesses which are currently closed, which is essentially all of them, will be closed till the end of March. I mean, is that the answer?
1: I think not i mean i think that these lockdowns are fundamentally misconceived and the thing is they were introduced uh, earlier you know last year they were introduced on the basis of modeling predictions uh yeah you know, which makes them quite frightening and dire predictions of what this disease would be like but in fact just uh, within the last couple of weeks there's been a quite a detailed study from a well-respected Stanford group using a much more sophisticated way of uh, modeling and taking into account both the the way that the virus changes itself and lightweight restrictions and heavyweight restrictions. And they've looked at a lot of European countries as well as the USA, and they found that the heavyweight restrictions have very little additional effect um, over the lightweight restrictions in terms of spreading viral spread. Okay, so, so when, you,
0: when you talk about lightweight restrictions, you're talking about social distancing, wearing masks, whereas <laughs> heavyweight is closing business down.
1: Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, so the, the, the really severe ones, there's very little evidence that they have any good effect. There's some evidence. In fact, they make things worse by confining people at home where the, where the virus can spread uh, more rapidly. So the point is, what, what you hear on the media and what the government's uh, uh, committees have been advising and what the governments all around the world are saying does not represent uh, a consensus amongst uh, uh, professionals. There are an awful lot of professionals, uh, you know, who've got severe reservations, uh, in my experience anyway, severe reservations about this being the right way to go about things. No country has ever improved uh, the health of its population by making itself poorer. Um, and so we, we've got a bit of an unholy brew, really. We've got, I, I believe, uh, an exaggerated view of how serious this virus is. It is a nasty virus, but we've got an exaggerated view of quite how serious it is. OK, well, when, when you say when
0: you say an exaggerated view, you were quoted as saying when you were on primetime the last time that under the age of 70, you believe this virus is less uh, dangerous than, the, than influenza and over the age of 70, a little bit more dangerous. Do you stand by those figures now?
1: Well, I think the thing is, the figures are very difficult because the data quality is very poor. But what we do know is that the most vulnerable group in society are the old and the very old. And really, that just reflects the fact that the old and the very old are more susceptible to all diseases. I mean, they're more susceptible to cancer, they're more susceptible to you know, injury, they're more susceptible to everything. So really, that's not saying anything very, very significant. The the, the witch's brew we've got is, a, is an exaggerated view of the severity of this virus it was originally thought to be maybe three and a half people out of 100 would die of it the actual overall population risk now is you know it's about 0.1 to 0.2 out of 100 so that really isn't very high and also we're not accounting for all the manifest harms that are brought about by these lockdowns all the missed medical treatment and you know, in the name of protecting old people, we're isolating them, and isolation kills old people. Well, I mean, okay, I, 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 I spoke
0: difficult. the other day here, we spoke about a paper that was released from the United States, which said that 900,000 people would die over the next 15 years. Now, they are unquantifiable deaths, uh, you know, from lockdowns, from restrictions, from lack of, I suppose, cancer diagnosis, etc., yeah. etc., and people becoming maybe morbidly obese over the eight months, which will shorten their lives, all those kind of different uh, scenarios. And 900,000 people in, the, in America is quite a lot of people to die over the next 15 years they probably could model that out even further and make it even worse but in, in saying that you know what is the answer because if you're saying to me that you know from what you believe and from the projected infections because obviously we haven't tested everybody in the population although we're getting there um, you're essentially saying to me that under the age of 65 we're pretty much the same as we were this time kind of last year or the year before that we have another influenza and where is influenza gone by the way
1: well exactly i mean uh you know, influenza fluctuates, so I guess, this new virus which is now endemic. It's always going to be out there now. We have to learn to live with it. The question is, what's the best way of dealing with it? And really, one of the things that's been lacking since the very beginning of this is proper open debate about the the ways we can go about this. I mean, the, the fact is, we're all on the same side. You know, we all want to look after people. But we're I not all I'm
0: really concerned. on the same side, are we? Because we have a government telling us that we're all in this together, and yet we have a, a large amount of people who are not really financially affected by this. So usually the public sector workers, uh, pensioners okay. or the unemployed, who are not financially f- affected by it. And then you've got the private sector, which the the hotels, the restaurants, the bars, and the retail, who are being devastated by this. So we're not really all in this together, are we?
1: Well, no, I mean, sorry, maybe I didn't make myself clear. I meant in terms of those of us who are arguing about what the right approach to dealing with this are. Mm -hmm. We're all on the same side. We all want to look after people. The question is, what is the right way of dealing with it? And of course, governments and their relatively narrow bands of advisors have gone down this untried untested route of lockdown now the thing is if you're a doctor you're going to introduce a new treatment to people you would want to feel that that treatment had been validated and worked through if the government's going to take on the role of doctor for everybody um, and their advisory committee is going to take on that role surely they would want to investigate to the maximum extent possible whether lockdowns actually really work the evidence emerging from real world studies now is that they don't work so i think it's way overdue that we have a re-evaluation of this and why and why do you think,
0: John, why do you think we're not allowed to have that debate? Because anybody who's tried to have that debate or suggests that we're doing things wrong, be it up on YouTube or whatever, usually has their videos removed. Or anybody who yeah. tries to have a very open conversation about the fact that we die, and we do over the age of 82, we're very susceptible to death. That's the mortality rate you know, in this part of the world. I mean, are we just not accepting anymore that people sadly, when they get to 85 or 95 or whatever age it happens to be and pe- the majority of people sadly that have passed away in this country i have been in care homes or i've been that age group have we just lost the ability to reason anymore
1: i well i i do agree that not being able to have a proper public conversation about death is part of it i mean we, we you know the the, the the number for britain is that you, you, if you the all-cause mortality average mortality uh, the average age at death in britain is uh 81 years and two months with covid it's 82 years and four months so the fact is, COVID isn't actually making people die younger than that age group.
0: On so, average, so on these, average, yeah.
1: On a, of course, on average. Of course, But I mean, that's, that's part of it. I think part of it is, is so we've got to have a, a, a conversation about death. The other part is that politicians have painted themselves into a corner um, by going down this route. And they now face you know, reputational carnage, basically, if they, if they reverse it. But we've got to reverse it because you can't rewrite the rule book of human interaction and human life.
0: But when, when the, you hear, when you hear the, somebody, as I heard a politician on the air the other day, turn around and say... When we talked about lockdowns, you know, and level five lockdown, which is destroying the economy, if it's to save one life, it's worth it. And when you hear lines like that, these emotional lines, if it was your brother or sister that was dying, wouldn't you want a lockdown? How does that make you feel as a pathologist and somebody who's medically qualified?
1: Well, I'm a doctor, so the point is, if you're talking about a population, it's what's best for the population as a whole, and the question is, people do die, none of the figures we see have denominators in them, so they're not put in context, and the question is, not whether anybody's going to die, people die every day, all the time, thousands of people die every day, all the time, quite naturally, the question is, for the population, what's the best way to deal with this new viral threat? And given that it was unclear at the beginning, and it remains to some extent uh, you know, less clear than it should be to people what's going on, what we absolutely need now is an open debate because the politicians are not medically trained. They're not the sort of people that you would actually trust to make decisions about your own family or yourself in medical things. Um, and, and in fact, neither are most of their advisory committees. These are often scientific people, people with modeling backgrounds and mathematical backgrounds. What we have to have is an open debate which fully engages the professions, particularly the medical profession, so that actually people can get a balanced picture so that you can understand what the right way to approach this is. I, I think it's not the right way.
0: Okay, the decisions they're making, of course, are the public policies that they're designing at the moment are based on PCR testing. So they're based constantly on numbers all the time. In relation to PCR testing, I mean, there's been a lot of debate in relation to the PCR testing, but yet those in charge and those in the advisory committees and government will never answer those questions. Even Mr. Hancock himself wouldn't really answer the question when he was asking Sky News about it. In relation to the reliability of PCR testing, and I did hear one guy from the NHS on Sky News said they took PCR testing with a grain of salt. Now, if they're taking it with a grain of salt, why are we basing public policy on it?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's a real problem. Um, uh, the reason we're basing public policy on it, cause it's really the only show in town in terms of how you actually find out maybe where some of this virus is, uh, quickly and, and relatively easy. But PCR testing is a very technically tricky test. The best way to pre- this is, you know, that analogy about the emperor of China who, uh, who was going to give somebody who won a game anything and they said, well, put one grain of rice on the first square, two on the second square, four on the second square and so on. And it actually turns into an enormous number very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So with PCR, what you do is you take a very small amount of RNA and you multiply it up like that. So the actual chunk of RNA you get whether you detect it or not depends an awful lot on the number of amplification cycles you do and at the moment as far as we know there's no control over this it's not being verified in different labs they're not publishing false positive tests the the test basically isn't a fully veri- verified validated test and that means that we really are in the middle of a bit of an epidemic of rubbish in rubbish out with this and we no, nobody knows really where we so are so is it so is it's it a
0: case demic I've heard this word case demic used before rather than an epidemic or pandemic
1: yes well it, Yes, well, there's two words you could use. A case demic is where you 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 you, equiv- you make an equivalence between positive tests and cases. Now, if I'm completely well and I have a positive test, in my medical opinion, I'm not a case. Yeah, You'd never hear about me. In the but they talk state. about
0: asymptomatic spreads, don't they? I mean, is, well, I, know, because, I know there's been yeah. numerous studies in relation to that, and many of those studies will say that it rarely happens. But And even Dr. Fauci said it rarely happens. But yet, uh, most countries in the world are suggesting that it does happen. And if you're a close contact, even you know, if you haven't tested positive, you should stay at home for 14 days, which, by the way, is the biggest problem we have in our health service at the moment, when out of 61,000 people who work in our health service, in one day, 7,000 are unavailable for work because they're a close contact and staying at home.
1: Yeah, it makes no sense. I mean, I mean, the, the, yes, I mean, the, the the other word that's used sometimes is a pseudo-epidemic, and a pseudo-epidemic is what you get when false positive tests make you feel that there's a lot going on, but actually when you look out there, there isn't. And of course, if you do millions of tests a day, even a small false, sorry, excuse me, even a small false positive rate translates into quite a high number of apparent cases. I mean, the bottom line is that this is, this is a dead end approach. This is a cul-de-sac approach. You can't live your life in fear of a virus or a germ that's out there we can't hide behind the sofa forever we're going to have to learn to live with this virus and surely the best way to learn to live with this virus is to have as many sensible minds involved in discussing what the best way to do this as possible shutting down debate is the worst thing you can do shutting down debate actually makes getting out of this harder than it should be. And I would have thought that not many people now are beginning to realize this, and hopefully our politicians will catch up with this soon as well. The more people they engage, the more approaches they engage, the more likely are we are to find a sensible way out. The sensible way out, I believe, is obviously carry on with the vaccination, which will be helpful, but it won't solve the problem indefinitely. Mm-hmm. But what we ought to do is to help those who are most vulnerable to shield, if they want to, let everybody else get back to normal and coerce nobody, because this is just not a way to live in a liberal democracy.
0: Okay, just a couple of questions before you go. and Some listeners are sending in questions as well. Can you ask them about the new variants that are now emerging? And are they something that we really genuinely should be concerned about? Because governments are telling us that we should be concerned about them.
1: Well they are because this helps to, uh, this helps to sort improve the compliance with the measures. But the thing is, these RNA viruses mutate rapidly all the time. There are tens of thousands of different variants of this virus being identified around the world. I personally think that the, that the shroud waving of, of the new variants is, is just exactly that. It's to scare people. Um, we expect these viruses to mutate. Once the vaccine has been rolled out, that's a huge new selective pressure on the vaccine. Almost certainly it will mutate to get around the vaccine. That shouldn't cause us to worry, though, because, as I say, the actual risk of this epidemic has been has been overemphasized. We're detecting it now, and a lot of people who are dying of other things, not of the virus. Okay, I was, I was, was going
0: to get to that because in the UK, Public Health England not so long ago removed five or six thousand deaths from the list because they said they didn't actually die uh, from COVID nineteen. They died with COVID nineteen of a test they might have had months ago. Now they've reduced it to twenty eight days, which is the same as it is here in Ireland. So, in other words, if you test positive with COVID, you get hit by a bus, you know, twenty seven days later, you're down yeah. as a co- with COVID death. I mean, do you believe that we've redefined this, this virus, like? If we had de- defined influenza deaths or other pneumonia deaths many years ago in this particular way, we probably would have had a lot more deaths from those particular viruses.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're we're counting this virus. Or cases of this virus in a way that we've never counted any disease before. And of course that's leading to massive anomalies in, in the perception of what this is doing. So the thing is, making it a notifiable disease means that they all have to be reported um, and classing anybody who had a positive test within the previous 28 days, irrespective of what they died of, is not a way that we've ever counted uh, respiratory deaths or you know, respiratory um, pathogen deaths before. And it does lead to a gross, well a substantial overestimation in the significance of this virus. And, and how, big,
0: how big do you think that overestimation is. When we look at, say, the the, the death rate, I mean, Ireland, obviously, in comparison to the UK, is a lot lower because we have a smaller population, but we have about 2,400 deaths in this country. Primarily, most of those, by the way, have been in care homes or people who are over the age of 80. I mean, when, when we look at those deaths, I mean, what percentage of those deaths do you genuinely believe? And I, I, I'm putting you on the spot kind of here because I'm sure you don't know yep, all the well, figures. But yeah, gen- well, generally well, speaking, what percentage of deaths are related to people actually just dying who are perfectly healthy and perfectly fine people who happen to get COVID-19 and dying from it? What percentage of that?
1: Well, it's, 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 in a nutshell, it's impossible to tell because of the way we've counted the numbers and done this. It makes it impossible to get through the figures. But, you know, if you look at, if you look at all-cause mortality which is basically deaths from all causes, and you don't try and determine whether or not um, it's a COVID death or a non-COVID death. If there was something really, really significant happening, um, you know, you'd see a massive bulge in extra people dying. And there is a slight bulge in extra people dying this year because of the, the newness of the virus. But it's not that great. I mean, it's not... As, it's, it's not well, the it's, suggestion it's actually in Ireland is... We, in.
0: The suggestion in Ireland is we've less deaths this year than we actually had last year. I know we, we are. Then.
1: So, yeah. so that's right. So, that, so if you look at that, that actually tells you that however we attribute the deaths, even if we attributed all deaths to COVID and no deaths to anything else, actually nothing much is happening because fewer people are dying. So, so when you actually add the numbers up in that way, that's what I mean by an exaggerated perception of how serious this is. It is a new virus. It's a nasty thing, but it's a sort of a, a media political bubble perception of what this virus is rather than on the ground. Health services always have trouble in the wintertime. Um, you know, nobody doesn't maybe he doesn't appreciate that healthcare workers put in a lot of work under difficult circumstances in wintertime. But that's really more to do with actually making our health services fit for purpose rather than we need to shut down the whole economy for a new pathogen. I mean, as I say, no country ever makes itself better, ever improves the health of its population by actually making itself poorer. It goes the other way. GDP and health are pretty closely linked uh, economically.
0: Absolutely. Just two more questions for you before you go, John. I appreciate you've been on the air today. Um, in relation to healthcare, because you talked about it a second ago, I mean... The, the health force at the moment, most of the marshals, and no, not most, of them, that would be an unfair comment to make, a lot of them are out sick. Um, and when I say out sick, they're not necessarily sick. They may have been in close contact. They may have tested positive and have no symptoms. So let's say, for example, here in Ireland, in one day we have 7,000 out of 61,000 healthcare workers out sick, which puts huge strain on the rest where everybody else then has to work their days off. How do we get around that? The suggestion is, is that we call people back to work who were a close contact and who tested negative, should everybody go back to work unless they have symptoms?
1: Well, there's some evidence that if you're an asymptomatic uh, sufferer with this virus, if you have the virus asymptomatically, you hardly have any symptoms at all. You also have a much lower viral load and you excrete lower viral load. Um, and there's evidence also that maybe you're not even, you're not necessarily even infectious on that. I, I do think that the a lot of the rules that were introduced were a big overreaction to the initial fears of what this virus might be, which, possibly was understandable at the time. But I would say since last May, June, we've known enough about this virus to know that those initial fears were not actually true. And therefore, we should revoke a lot of these rules. They they are, I mean, it seems perfectly clear to me that that the rules are causing more harm now than the virus could, could possibly do, even if we completely relax all the rules now. Um, the What we were actually doing by lockdowns is causing more harm than the virus. I moment.
0: mean, because if you take the UK figures yesterday, 48,682 coronavirus cases, if every one of those had five contacts, that's over 200,000 people out of work for 14 days, even though they may test negative. Um, that, that doesn't mean that, that it won't be long. If that continued, you know, over the next two or three weeks, it won't be long before the whole population is out of work.
1: Well, well, exactly, and/or have all had the virus, in which case that's great because we can get back to normal. But I mean, the the thing is, it doesn't make sense to do this. the 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 evidence for. Keeping people like that out of work, some of whom will have already had the virus, some of whom may have been vaccinated, uh, some of whom, uh, many of whom are asymptomatic. It, it doesn't make any sense. We should deal with this in the way we deal with a normal cold, which is, you know, if you, if you have a, a cold normally and you feel pretty awful with it, you probably wouldn't go to work and you save other people from catching it and you get better quicker yourself. That's fine. But keeping people away from work who are otherwise well I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. But but then again,
0: you do have the emotional blackmail as well there by governments telling us that, you know, if you do pass it on to somebody, you could be responsible for their death. And that's something we've never done before in history. You know, we've often had the flu and we've passed it on to a friend by mistake. We don't do it intentionally. We've never felt responsible for them being ill. But now we're told that, you know, if you do something wrong, you could kill granny or you could kill your mum or dad or you could kill somebody vulnerable.
1: But this is this is why politicians aren't the right people to be the nation's doctors because obviously that is life i mean that that is life you can't stop germs spreading germs are out there and viruses are out there and they do what they do um, and the point is this this approach to you know, re- reducing viral spread has worked in the past in one or two cases of viruses like smallpox for example or like ebola more recently these are very non-transmissible viruses so if you break the chain of transmission you can stop the viral epidemic that's great that works fine but the respiratory virus is an airborne virus it blows around on the wind there is essentially well as i say the the, re, the most recent study comparing this with a sophisticated modeling approach shows that actually hard lockdowns have pretty indiscernible additional effects. But what they clearly have a huge effect on is quality of life. And no doctor doesn't include quality of life in their calculations of a treatment. Obviously, if, if actually you degrade the quality of life to a degree that actually makes life worth, not worth living, you wouldn't give the treatment. And well,
0: we all know that health is about physical health, mental health, and, and obviously our social health as well. One final question just for you, John, before you go. The vaccine, and uh, obviously you know, there's four major vaccines that are out there at the moment. The most popular one, of course, is the Pfizer vaccine. Um, we, we has been rolled out quite slowly here in Ireland at the moment. Maybe they'll get their act together very shortly, but quite quickly in the UK and America. Is it going to be the silver bullet? Are they going to come along in six months' time and say, ah, sorry, lads, that vaccine didn't really work. People are still spreading the virus. You know, you might not be getting too many symptoms, but people are still spreading it, and our elderly are still sadly passing away. So we need to go back to lockdowns again. Do you believe it's the silver bullet to stop all this, or a way out of this for governments?
1: Well, I hope it's a way out of it for government because they've done pretty much all they can do, and so they should let us get back to normal. The thing is, RNA viruses like Corona—these viruses are RNA coronaviruses um, there's a long history of not being able to make effective vaccines against coronaviruses. What I think will—I think this vaccine will help. I think it's a good idea for people to get the vaccines. I think it hopefully will provide a route out of this craziness uh, by governments. But will it stop the virus in its tracks? No, it won't. Will the virus go away after these vaccines? No, it won't. Will it stop spreading? and will we not have seasonal outbursts of this virus in the future yes we will so this isn't going to go away this is a great help and the politicians must use it to get us back to normal but we can't live like this forever because if they carry on down this route Um, The vaccine won't stop it and we will live like this forever. And obviously none of us want to go there.
0: Absolutely. And what do you say to people, by the way, who are vaccine cautious? Because obviously this is the first time we've had an RNA vaccine. It's the first, uh, I suppose, it was rolled out very quickly. uh, And people are a little bit cautious. Those who were normally pro-vaccine and not anti-vaccine have almost turned anti-vaccine because they're they're watching YouTube videos and stuff like that. Personally, yeah. from your experience, this vaccine, yes, there has been some side effects um, in a small amount of people. But do you think overall it's the better bet than getting COVID-19?
1: Uh, it's a really difficult question to answer, actually. I think, I, think uh, I would say that vaccination has been a great success in medical history over 200 years. I do have reservations about the way this vaccine has been rushed out and the way it has been rushed out. But on the other hand, you know, every time you scratch your finger or cut your knee or, or you know, you, Braise your lip i mean we get rna from the environment in this all the time from millions of different types of bugs and vaccines and viruses and things so actually i think the real risks associated with this vaccine are pretty minimal like they are with most vaccines um, and if it helps get us all out of lockdown and get us back to a normal life i would recommend it and you know it's the best the best option we've got at the moment for um, you know, enabling our ruling classes to see some sense and get back. But what we really want is an open debate. Have it discussed in public, in open, get more professionals involved, more minds make light work, don't they? We'll get a better solution to this if you involve more people and they just stick with your narrow, cautious advisory committees.
0: Listen, I appreciate you coming on the air today and thank you very much indeed, Professor John Lee. Thank you. There you go. Uh, just to give you a slightly different perspective on everything you've been hearing, um, sadly he, what he mentioned there at the end, I thought a lot of people might be interested and he doesn't believe the vaccine will be the end of the virus certainly it may be the end of people dying or you know this could turn into something just like a common cold over time uh, because we'll all have a vaccine and uh, seemingly the vaccine is supposed to reduce the symptoms uh, there are people who are vaccine cautious by the way and i appreciate that and i respect people who are vaccine cautious i don't um necessarily agree with you all the time but i do respect it i've always been pro-vaccine i've always said i've been pro-vaccine I do have reservations like John about this particular vaccine, like everybody. But as John rightly said, if it gets everybody back to some level of normality, we can all go back to work again. We can all start earning money. We can all start going on holidays again. And if it gets government out of this hole or this runaway train that they seem to be on at the moment, well, maybe that'll be a good thing. All right. And certainly, I think when we look at the I mean, people have talked about the side effects of this vaccine and as we mentioned this particular vaccine. I said slightly more for side effects than many other rollouts of va- vaccines. That's because obviously it was rushed out. Um, but overall, um, if you look at the trade off, the trade off is you don't get COVID-19 or those symptoms or you don't pass it to granny. And at the end of the day, the last thing we want is people dying before their time. People have died before the time of COVID-19. There is no doubt about that. I don't believe the figures and I don't believe, as John rightly said, I don't believe the the virus is as dangerous as it's being made out to be. But I certainly do believe it is a virus that is killing people.